The following audio is from Potomac Heights Baptist Church, located in Indian Head, Maryland. More information about Potomac Heights Baptist Church is available at www.phbc.com. Potomac Heights Baptist Church exists to glorify God and to make Christ known to the ends of the world by helping one another become more like Jesus. It is our hope that you will prayerfully listen to this sermon audio. If you have a Bible with you this morning, I hope you do. Whether you're here in person or watching online, open with me to the book of Romans. We're in Romans chapter 12, so yes, we're getting back into the book of Romans. And we will uh, finish up Romans later this spring. And so we are in chapter 12 today. We'll be in verses 1 through 8. And we're going to jump right into the text today, so I hope you're already there. Follow along with me as I read verses 1 through 8 from Romans 12. Paul writes, he says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for our time together and in these few moments now that we have together, again here in person or whether we're online, Father, help us now during this time to hear your word, to understand it properly, to apply it into our lives. Lord, that we might, at the end of this message, at the end of this service today, that we might be just a bit more like Jesus than when we woke up this morning. And that you would be about transforming us from one degree of glory to another, ever more and more into the image of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So a very central, a very simple central idea for those for those of you who are note takers is that we are to give ourselves wholly to God. We're to give ourselves wholly to God. Not so not holy with just an H, as in like we're to be holy as God is holy, but holy as in completely to God. Our text today begins with these words. He Paul says, "I appeal to you, therefore, brothers." Now that word, therefore. Um, almost always links to something that's come previously to it. And so we're in chapter 12 right now, and the question 
that we must ask ourselves is, how much of what's going on before chapter 12 is Paul including with that therefore statement? Um, now, since we've been away from Romans for a couple of months, I'm going to just do a very brief, like a 30-second summary of chapters 1 through 11. In chapters 1 through 8, uh, they give us a basic doctrinal understanding of what the gospel is. This, this is an oversimplification, but in chapters 1 through 3, they show us the pervasiveness of sin. Sin has affected everyone. Chapters 4 and 5 declare the centrality of faith. Chapter 6 proclaims that now that we've placed our faith in Christ, we're no longer slaves to sin. Rather, we are now slaves to righteousness. Chapter 7 highlights our new relationship with the law, namely that we're not under the law anymore. We've been freed from the law. And then in chapter 8, we learn that we've been given life in the Spirit and that we have the hope of future glory. So there are a 30-second oversimplified understanding of chapters 1 through 8. But then in chapters 9 through 11, the Apostle Paul is basically, he's asking the question, does that same gospel, the same one that I've outlined in chapters 1 through 8, does that same gospel apply also to the Jews? And the answer is yes. Yes, the gospel is for the Jew, and the same gospel is for the Gentile as well. And so here's another way of thinking about everything that's happened up to this point. Chapters 1 through 11 form what we would call the indicative of God's grace and mercy. The, the indicative meaning this is what God has already done. This, this is the work that He's already accomplished on our behalf. And so I want you to hold on to that term, the indicative. Hold on to that for just a moment, okay? And so now since the gospel is for the Jew and the, God, and, and the Gentile, since that's happened, therefore, he says, what follows in chapters 12 through 15, this is going to apply to all Christians. And so that therefore that we have right at the beginning of our passage, it's actually pointing all the way back to everything from chapter 1 all the way through chapter 11. Everything that God has already done, the indicative. And so since we know that that indicative is true, Paul's going to spend now the next four chapters, and we're, we're just looking at a bit of chapter 12 today, but he's going to spend the next four chapters rattling off a, a, a number of imperatives. Now you might say, well, what's an imperative? Well, an imperative is a command. That's, that's all an imperative is. It's a command. But please hear me well, but this is so important to understand chapters 12 through 15. This is crucial for us. The indicative, what God's already done, the indicative is always the basis for the imperative. In other words, we're not to try to carry out God's commands... We're not, we're not supposed to carry out the, the imperatives without God having already done His work in our hearts through the indicatives. Chapters 1-11, through 11, that, those are the indicatives. God has done these things for us. And so now in 12-15, through 15, we're going to be looking at imperatives. And we're going to try to carry out those imperatives in verses, excuse me, chapters 12-15. through 15. But to try to carry them out without first being rooted without being rooted in chapters 1 through 11 and those indicatives it really it only forms a type of legalism so if i say well i can do what god tells me to do and i'll do it all on my own that leads to legalism and paul says we don't want it that's why he spent 11 chapters going through the indicative this is what god has done for you before he ever gets to the imperative 
And so this doctrinal understanding of the gospel, it's secure for us. We see that in chapters 1 through 11. And so chapters 12 through 15 are basically, they're going to answer this so what question. So, so what? Now, so now that those things are true, how does that really affect my daily life? How, how am I supposed now to live for Christ since those things are true? Well, that's what chapters 12 through 15 are all about. Okay? Now I want to make four points from these eight verses that we're looking at today. First point is that we must identify our primary allegiance. We must identify our primary allegiance. Paul begins chapter 12, the section of Scripture, by appealing to his brothers and sisters in Christ. Those words, I appeal to you in Christ, though, they're actually really far too weak what, what Paul is trying to say here. Other English translations use the words, I urge you or I plead with you. Whenever I read chapter 12, verse 1, I, my mind always goes, so I'm, I'm a music person, I love, I'm not like a music person, being, I can't do this, uh, but I like listening to good music. And so my mind always goes back to, to that 1966 Motown's classic song, By the Temptations, you know the song, Ain't Too Proud to Beg, right? So, yeah, that's, that's the idea what Paul is getting. He says, I'm not too proud to beg. I'm begging you, I'm appealing to you, I'm urging you because of the mercies of Christ. But why is he pleading? Why is he begging? Well, he's pleading them. Look with me there at verse 1. He's pleading with them to present their bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And since he's pleading to them, because this is Scripture, that means he's also pleading with us to present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. But what does he mean there by bodies? You know, is he talking about this fleshly part of us? Well, in, in a sense, yes, he is talking about that, but he's also he's talking about much more than that. Paul's talking about here about giving our entire self to God. So when, when we come to Jesus, we don't say, well, you know, it's a great offer, Jesus, and I'm going to give you this part of me, but I have this other part that I want to kind of hold on to myself. Maybe, maybe it's a pet sin that we have in our life that we're just not, we're not quite ready to relinquish that to God. And so we can't, we can't imagine living life without that pet sin. And so I'm going to give to Jesus everything except that. No. Just no. Don't even go there. That's, that's wrong. When we come to Jesus, we give all of ourselves to Him. Every part of ourselves belongs under the Lordship of Christ. That doesn't mean we're going to do so perfectly. But it means that when we fail to live to His standards, we recognize that that's sin. And we need to repent of that. And so, that's why what we do, what we do with our physical bodies, it does belong to Jesus. Paul in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he tells us how wrong it is to commit sexual immorality. He says, because when you commit sexual immorality, you're actually, you actually bring Jesus into that sexual immorality with you. And so it's wrong. Don't do that. Flee that type of sexual immorality. And our, our, not only do, so not only does our physical bodies belong to Jesus, but even our thought life belongs to Jesus. That Jesus himself tells us that if we lust after someone who's not our spouse, We've already committed adultery with that person in our hearts. And so our thought lives belong to Jesus. But not only that, our, our emotions belong to Jesus. 
That's why Jesus says if we're angry with our brother, we've already committed murder in our hearts. Do you get the idea? So our our physical person, our emotions, our mental, everything, everything belongs to Jesus. We don't hold back any part of ourselves. We give it all to Jesus. And so Paul here, he's begging us to present all of us as a sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And then he tells us there at the end of verse 1, he says that this is our spiritual worship. At least that's how the ESV that I read from translates it. Some, some translations call it their uh, true and proper worship. And still other translations, they call it reasonable or rational or a rational form of worship. And without getting too much into the weeds of the original Greek here, both that idea that this is our spiritual worship as well as that is our reasonable, reasonable worship, they both fit both of those are, are viable translations, but I, I prefer the latter one, that, that's a, the reasonable worship. And here's why. What Paul's getting at in verse 1 is he's saying it's entirely reasonable for us to give all of ourselves to God, given the fact that what He's done for us in Christ. And so when we think about, well, look at what He's already done for us. It's very reasonable that we would give all of ourselves to Him. That's how we would worship the Lord. Now now look with me in verse 2. He says, That means then we're not to be conformed to this world. We're not to be conformed to the spirit of this age in which we live. It was true in Paul's day. It's true as very, very much in our day that we're not to be conformed to this age. We're to give all of ourselves to Jesus. You know, when we, when we think about this world, there's nothing in this world that saves us. And not only that, there's nothing in this world that's permanent. Our health, our house, our 401k. In a thousand years, friends, none of that's going to be remembered. Nobody is going to remember Brian Sandifer in a thousand years. And I'm perfectly okay with that. And if you're thinking, well, they're, going to rem- they're not going to remember you either. This is not permanent. This is not our world. We're only here for a short time, so we don't need to conform ourselves to this world. Rather, he says, in verse 2 again, we're to be transformed. But how are we to be transformed? He tells us there in verse 2. He says we're transformed by the renewing of our mind. Now, we've all heard the phrase, elections have consequences. But here's another phrase for it. Our thoughts have consequences. And so when Paul tells us that we're to renew our minds, it's because what we think we become. Now, Paul here, he's not suggesting that we should be manifesting, which is is a new trend. And if you don't know what manifesting is, don't bother Googling it. You're better off for not knowing it. It's just a bunch of hogwash, okay? Uh, nor, nor is Paul here giving any type of credence to you know, the power of positive thinking. If you take all your Norman Vincent Peale books and just throw them away. That's not what Paul is talking about. The transformation that Paul has in mind here is the renewal of our mind in biblical thought. He's suggesting here that we should be so familiar with the Bible that when we get cut, we bleed Bible. When we watch the news, do we watch the news through a biblical lens? When we interact on social media, do we interact 
through a biblical lens. When a friend comes us to us for advice, do we give that advice again through a biblical lens? You see, has our mind been transformed? And because when our mind is transformed, there at the end of verse 2, when our mind is transformed, we will be able to discern what the will of God is. We'll be able to, to understand that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And, and that makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, if, if God is actually the author of this book, which I believe He is, so God is the author of this book, He reveals Himself in this book, then inasmuch as I want to have a transformed mind, I understand the content of this book then it goes without saying, since God is the author, that I'm going to understand something of His will for my life, right? Because that's what this book is all about. And so we identify our primary allegiance. That allegiance belongs to Jesus. We give Him everything we are. We, we refuse to be conformed to this world. Rather, we transform our minds. Our minds are continually renewed by the Word of God. That's point number one. Point number two is we must pursue humble self-reflection. See this in verse three. We must pursue humble self-reflection. He begins verse three with these words. He says, for by the grace of God given to me, I say to everyone among you. I want, to, I want us to notice two things about this opening phrase. First, Paul here, he's, he's laying out his apostolic credentials. He's saying, I'm an apostle. That's why he says there, by the grace given to me. He's not talking about saving grace. If he were talking about saving grace, he would say, by the grace given to us. Because he's writing to a bunch of brothers and sisters. But he says, this is the grace given to me. He's saying, I am an apostle. The grace of God has appointed me an apostle. That's who I am. But second, he says, because I'm an apostle, he has something to say, notice this, to everyone among you. He's speaking with apostolic authority. He's speaking to every Christian because he's an apostle. So um, imagine for just a moment that you work in the White House, in the West Wing of the White House. And by some security breakdown, you see me walking toward your office uh, this week. On Tuesday morning, I'm walking toward your office. I come into your office and I tell you, uh, tell you what, this next weekend, go ahead and make it a three-day weekend. You've been working hard. I appreciate all your work. Are, are, you going to take, are you going to make the next weekend a three-day weekend? Not if you value your job, you're not, right? Of course you're not going to do it. Because I have zero authority in the White House to offer you a three-day weekend. It doesn't matter how hard you've been working, I can't give that to you. Now, on the other hand, if Ron Klain, who's the current White House Chief of Staff, he's walking toward your office, and he says, you know, I really appreciate how hard you've been working over these last two weeks since the new administration took over, and you know, just as a show of gratitude to you, I, why don't you take this next weekend and make it a three-day weekend? Now, are you allowed now to have the three-day weekend? Well, of course you are. He could give you that three. He could give the hundreds of people that work in the West Wing. Give all. He said, all of you get a three-day weekend. He has the authority to do that. When Paul plays his apostolic card here, he's telling everyone who's reading his letter. He's saying, "I have the authority." To say what I'm about to say. He, and basically what he's saying, if you want to follow Christ, then you have to do these things. He says, and I have the authority to lay that down for you. And the first thing he tells us to do, there in verse 3, is to pursue humble self-reflection. 
Specifically, verse 3, he tells us that we're not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, but we're to think with sober judgment. And see, and if, if we're not living for ourselves anymore, if we're actually living for Christ, then, then we shouldn't think more highly of ourselves, right? We, we should have more the mind of Christ. That's what Philippians 2 is about. Philippians 2, you needn't turn there, but listen, this is a fantastic passage. It's Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11. Paul says, For if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility... Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which, was, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And so friends, listen, if Jesus, who is actually in the very form of God himself if Jesus was able to humble himself then it really it's not a big ask for us to humble ourselves as well but what's the problem why, why don't we do that you know what why is Paul even bringing this up why is he telling them that they need to do this you know, he's not bringing this up because he's just looking for something else to talk to him he's bringing this up because they're not doing this there are pri- there's pride in the hearts of these Roman Christians. They're, they're already thinking too much of themselves. There's this whole Jew-Gentile dynamic that's happening. The Jews think they're better than the Gentiles. The Gentiles think they're better than the Jews. The sin of pride is an old sin. It goes all the way back to the garden. It's still with us today. Some people pridefully think they're better than others because of their ethnicity. Other people pridefully think they're better than others because of their job or because of the education they've attained. Some people feel pride because they sincerely believe that whatever social stance that they're taking a stand on is going to actually put them on the right side of history. And still others sense pride because of the size of their bank account or because of the neighborhood they live in. I mean, there are probably as many reasons to feel prideful as there are people on the planet. But for the Christian, hear me, beloved, for the Christian, pride is the stench of death. And to whatever extent we are prideful, to that same extent, or perhaps even a greater extent, we are less, or we're we're being removed, if you will, as an example of Christ. So when we're prideful, We're not more like Jesus when we're prideful. There's an old saying, it's almost cliche, but it's true, that the ground at the foot of the cross is level. There's no place for pride. 
for Christians. Your ethnicity didn't save you. Nor did your education or bank accounts save you. Your job and your stance on social issues won't save you. If you've been saved, there's one reason you've been saved. And that's by grace through faith. Jesus died on the cross to take away your sins, which were many, yours and mine, which were many. He went to the cross because we weren't capable of saving ourselves. Only Jesus could do that. He died so that we might have life. So Paul tells us here we, to think, we need to think about ourselves with sober judgment according to the measure of faith that God has assigned to us. Did you catch that last phrase there in verse 3? Each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. There's the reason for our humility, right? Whatever measure or whatever amount of faith that we have, we can't even boast about that. And, And why not? Because whatever faith, whatever amount of faith we have, it's been assigned to us by God. You know, it's, it's not even my faith. I can't say to someone, well, I have more faith than you. Therefore, I'm a better Christian. Whoop, prideful. I can't do that. Nor can you do that. Because whatever measure of faith that we have has been assigned to us. And beloved, don't you understand how this, how this leads, it propels us toward a greater humility. It's not my faith. It's what God has given to me. It is true, it is true that some people have more faith than others. Okay, let's be open and honest about it. That is true. But here's what I'm trying to say to you. Don't throw your shoulder out of joint by patting yourself on the back too quickly, saying, oh, look at my faith. No, there's no place for that. Because God has given us that faith. And so we, we need to pursue humble self-reflection. Point number two. Point number three. We must recognize our place in the body. In the body. This point closely follows from the previous point, from the logic of the previous point. So so if we're pursuing this type of humble self-reflection, then it follows that we should recognize our place in the body. It's shown grammatically in our text when verse four begins with that little word for, F-O-R. For as in one body. That word for closely ties verses 3 and 4 together. Paul uses the analogy of a human body here to describe the people of God. It's not the only place in the Bible he does that, but he's certainly doing that, that here in Romans chapter 12. He says at the beginning of verse 4, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. And so think about the human body. Some parts of our body are visible and they seem very important, right? We have hands, we have legs, we have feet. We have a head. Seems to be pretty important. There are other bodies, parts of our body that we can't see and yet they also seem to be pretty important, right? We have our lungs, we can't, can't see them, but they seem pretty important. Our brain, our heart, uh, things you can't see on the outside, but they, you know, they're pretty important. And then there are other parts of our body that are both seen and unseen, and, and we often make the judgment that they're not as important as other parts. You know, you got your little toe, your pinky toe, you know, is that really as important? Or your eyebrows? 
or maybe in the inside you have your appendix. But the reality is that all of those parts are important. Some are more important than others, for sure. We can live without an appendix. We can't live without a brain. So some parts may be more important than others, but all of the parts are important. That's Paul's point when he says here, the members, of the, he's talking about the body, the members of the body do not all have the same function. But nevertheless, he says, they're all part of the one body. We're all part of the same body. Likewise, in verse 5, even though there's a lot of us here who make, not, not here in this room today, but there's a lot of us who, who make up the body of PHBC, who, who call PHBC their home, we're one body in Christ, therefore we're individually, he says, members, notice this, of one another. Did you catch that last phrase there? We're not just members of one body of Christ, we, we, we are that, but there's more to it. We're individually members one of another. Here's another way of saying that. We belong to each other. We belong to each other. When we, when we join a church, two things happen. A lot, a lot of things happen, but I want, to, I want to focus on these two things. First, when we join a church, the church um, effectively is, and collectively is saying, in as much as we can tell, you appear to be our brother or sister in Christ. We, we affirm that you are a Christian. They, they affirm our testimony. Yes, this individual is a Christian. That's the first thing that happens. Second, when you join a church, the church is now saying to you, saying, hey, you belong to us. And likewise, we belong to you because we're all part of the same body. And now that we're all part of this same body, we have a responsibility one to another. And so in as much as we see somebody pressing on toward Christ-likeness, we have a responsibility to encourage that person and say, yes, I like that, that's good. And in as much as we see somebody failing to press on toward Christ-likeness, we have a responsibility to admonish that person. Say, hey, brother or sister, you can, you can do better than this. You can do better. Or to say it in a different way, we're all part of the same body. And so we have the privilege and responsibility to get involved in one another's lives. That's what church members do. We get involved with one another. Last week, I read one of the articles from our church covenant um, as part of the message. Here's a little more from our church. I won't read the whole covenant, but here's, here's a little more from the covenant. Covenant says, we will walk together in Christ-like love, exercise and affectionate care and watchfulness over each other, and faithfully strengthen one another. We will not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, nor neglect to pray for one another. We will rejoice at each other's happiness and bear each other's burdens. We will faithfully continue the work of the church as we sustain its worship, ordinances, discipline, and doctrine. Do you hear all that one-anotherness there? And how all that works together in the church? That this is all part of the church? That's what, that's what we do. That's why we make that promise to one another in our covenant. We recognize our place in the body. And so if you're a member here at this church, whether you're here in person or whether you're watching on live stream, you have an important place in this body. And you need to recognize 
your place in the body. That's point number three. Final point. Point number four. Is we must use our gifts to glorify God. Or to, to the glory of God, rather. We must use our gifts to the glory of God. Excuse me. As we recognize our place in the body, we also recognize that God has gifted each one of us in various ways. And as he's gifted us, we're to use those gifts in the body. Verse 6 tells us, says, Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Notice four things about that little short phrase. First, we all have gifts, right? Paul simply says, having gifts. There's no category here for the ungifted church member. You know, like we have all the people that have gifts, they sit on this side of the room, and then if you don't have gifts, well, you sit on this side of the room. Like like those poor children back from elementary school with the last ones picked on the playground when you're playing a game of kickball, those are the ungifted ones, and so that's why they're at the last of the line. Yeah, there's no place for that in the body. We're all gifted. All of us have gifts in the body. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 12 that says to each one is given various gifts. And so we're all gifted. Sometimes I get the question, by the way, on that topic. People will say, well, how do I know what my spiritual gift is? You know, should I take one of those spiritual inventory gifts? You know, charts, uh, should I do that? And, find out what? and I usually say, you know, probably not. Probably, probably not the best way to find out what your giftedness is. I'm not, I'm not saying that they're going to be hurtful, but it's probably not the, really the best way. The best way to determine what your spiritual gift is is to throw yourself into the work of the church. Okay, I mean this sincerely. Throw yourself into the work of the church. Find some area of the church where you can serve, where you can, can make a commitment and serve there for a number of weeks. You say, I'm going, to, I'm going to give myself for the next three months and I'm going to serve in this area. And here's what's going to happen. You'll find, through the encouragement of others, either in a positive way to say that you, yes, you're, you're suited for this or know that you're really not suited for this. You'll find out in a, in a period of time whether or not that particular area that you're serving in is the area where you're gifted to serve. Now, if you, if you don't even know where to begin, you're like, I don't even know where to begin. Where, where, would, I, where would I just jump in? Come and talk to me. Talk to Associate Pastor Brian. We'd, we'd love to point out some areas where we say, Here, here's a great way, a place that you can start by serving. But the point is, just, just begin. Just start serving. We, we all have gifts. That's the first thing. Second thing, those gifts differ from one another. Not everybody's a teacher. Not everybody does well with acts of mercy. We all have different gifts. Just, just like hands don't carry out the same function as feet, right? Some, some church members carry out one function, other church members carry out different functions. We all have gifts. They're not always the same gift. Third, I want you to notice also in this passage here, this is a phrase of something that, that's already come up once in our passage here, but it's important we see it again here, that our different gifts are, quote, according to the grace given to us. In other words, God gives us these gifts. He gives, and He gives us just the right gifts. He gives us just what we need. You know, sometimes we look at, I wish I had that gift. Well, maybe you don't have that gift. But, but don't chastise God that He didn't give you that gift. He, he's given you just what you need. Serve, serve how He's gifted you. Fourth, finally, I want you to notice that phrase here. He says, 
let us use them. In other words, our, our gifts aren't supposed to be put in a trophy case. Our gifts are supposed to be used. Let me, let me illustrate what I mean there. Since I've been here, um, and I, I talked about Matt before I'm using this illustration, to, so he knows that I'm using this. Um, I don't think anybody in this church has owned more cars than, than my brother Matt Martin since, since I've been here. He's, he's had some rather pedestrian cars, you know, just you know, sedans. And he's also had some really fancy cars. But, but here's what I appreciate about, about Matt and his cars, and I mean this genuinely. His cars aren't show cars. He, he doesn't buy a car and just leave it parked in his garage. He buys a car and then he drives that car. He puts mileage on that car. Th- that's what cars are for. Cars are meant to be driven. Likewise, our spiritual gifts are meant to be used. We're not supposed to have show gifts. Oh, I have this great gift, but yeah, I'm not going to use it because I'm just putting it over here in a trophy case right now. Our gifts are meant to be used for the glory of God. And then Paul lists, and, and I won't have time to go into uh, any type of great detail on what all these gifts are and, and what they are and what they're not. I'll, I'll make some comments, but he gives us a list of seven different gifts. Most of them are, are fairly self-explanatory. But here are the gifts. There's prophecy. And so I'll break my rule right away. Uh, this is not the same thing as preaching or teaching. Okay, somebody, well, prophecy is really what we do for preaching now. No, that, that's not, not true. If you want to talk to me about that later, we can talk about it later. Uh, but there's prophecy. Then there's service. There's teaching. Exhortation. Generosity, as in being generous with your time or generous with your finances. There's leadership and acts of mercy. Now, he gives us seven here. I want you to notice, well, those aren't all of these. So, well, those are the sum total of all the spiritual gifts. No, not, not by a long shot. Those aren't the sum total. There are other passages that talk about other spiritual gifts, and we can talk about that another time. But these seven, I want you to notice this, that we use these gifts how they were given to us. Those who prophesy, Paul says, they do so in proportion to the faith that they've been given to prophesy. Right? Those who serve, they use that gift by doing what? Here's a crazy idea. By serving, right? Though those who teach, guess how they use their gift? This, this isn't hard, folks. By teaching. Though those who exhort, how do they use their gift? By exhorting. Hey, yeah, we're catching on, right? This is how you use your gifts. And so, brothers, let me just ask you this very simple question. Are you using your gifts in the body of Christ? And are you using them to the glory of God? And just one more final question as we close. Are we giving ourselves wholly to God? I mean, everything that we have. Say, here's a blank check, Jesus. I'm yours. Use me however it is that you would use me. But use me for your glory. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you so much for this day. I thank you for my brothers and sisters who are here in this room. Um, remember when the pandemic started, it was so discouraging. Just to, uh, I love my brother Brian, but just, just for the two of us to be in this room and to have nobody else, it was, it was discouraging at times. Uh, so even though we're small in number today, I'm encouraged to see brothers and sisters in front of me today and I'm encouraged to know that there are others listening online, but Father, uh, Lord, 
Thank you for the gift of the church to know that we are here for one another, that we belong to one another. And so help us to encourage one another, to admonish one another, to press one another on toward Christ's likeness. Lord, that we would recognize that we belong wholly to you. Every part of ourselves, we belong to you. Father, for those brothers and sisters that we haven't seen in such a long time because of the pandemic, Father, they, that they would know that they are loved. They are missed. I miss them. I've talked to a number of them on the phone. And, uh, but Father, I just pray that you would let them know that they're missed and, and just as soon as they're able that they could come back and be a part of the good things that, that are going on here at PHBC. Lord, for for those that you've sent us, even in the midst of a pandemic, uh, men and women, guests who have come, who who have begun to make PHBC their home, Father, Lord, you are so gracious to us. I thank you for each one of these men and women who have come and begun to make PHBC their home. Lord, I pray that you would continue to uh, use us as a light here in our community to point others to Jesus that we would continue to be faithful as we give all of ourselves to you. Lord, we love you and we thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for taking time to listen to this sermon audio from Potomac Heights Baptist Church. Please feel free to make copies of this audio to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission from Potomac Heights Baptist Church.